Welcome to the UOUC Talk Show. Our goal for this show is to introduce you to the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I appreciate the inv invitation. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Timberlake. I work at the Armory here at UIUC. I'm the Air Force ROTC commander there. I've been there since uh, summer of 2019. So I've had to uh, face the, all the COVID stuff, the restrictions that all the students have had to endure, as well as the instructors. Um, but uh, it's been a good tour. I appreciate uh, this, the environment that UIUC offers their students and uh, the flexibility they offer to the faculty to uh, get the mission done and teach the students. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. We, we are really excited to, to have you and talk to you. So you are part of the one of the newest branches of the you know US military. Yes. I think I think the first one since almost 70 years or something like that. It's been over 70 years. Uh, it was um, since the Air Force was created in 1947. So um, it's the next newest branch of the DoD. Um, so yes, I'm part of the US Space Force. I have been since last summer when I transi transitioned over. <clears throat> um, but I'm about to start my first official Space Force job by uh, transferring over to LA Air Force Base to take on a job out there working with satellite communications. And which we'll get there in a minute. Okay. So you were telling me that you grew up in San Jose, which is you know close to Silicon Valley and California and everything else. Yes. And something I was learning recently is that there was some sort of interview with some Space Force um, uh, department, I think in Colorado. Right. Okay. And they were saying that the Space Force is really interesting because there's very, you know, tacky, uh, techy savvy people with master's PhD, even high school graduates. Everyone's very techy and everyone's like collaborating and everything else. Is that something that, that is true? Is that something that you, you see happening? Yes, absolutely. In fact, in San, near San Jose, there's a program called AFWERX, A-F-W-E-R-X. And it is part of the Air Force, but uh, uh, that branch uh, also handles or is influenced by uh, technology in the area to enhance space mission. So not only just aircraft, which Air Force is mostly known for, but now also the space, the space mission. It is incorporated part of um, the Department of the Air Force, which includes both U.S. Air Force and Space Force. But that's sort of a, a prime Certainly a prime location for all the techie uh, technology that's coming out of the Silicon Valley, not just computers, but with all the other things. For And it's a, a way that the Department of the Air Force can utilize that um, uh, intellectual resource to try and uh, uh, research and develop things better, faster for the service. You know, what does the... U.S. military mean to you? Like, when did you know you were going to join? Like, when did you know, you know, this is what I want to do? Oh, boy. Uh, it wasn't when I first started. Uh, sure. When I first started, I, I went in knowing it's something that uh, I could do engineering for. So when I graduated college uh, in the late 90s, uh, my job search didn't go as well as planned. So I started looking more into the Air Force. And, and after talking to a recruiter, I found out that uh, they could, with almost certainty, they couldn't say 100%, but with high certainty, they can take me in as an engineer. 
as aerospace engineering, which is what I study. Fantastic. I can have a job, but also uh, have avenues to progress afterwards. That was in 2000. So I went through training, finished. My first job was in Los Angeles. I worked on satellites out there. Um, so I was doing the job. I enjoyed the people I work with. Uh, I was doing, learning things about satellites. Uh, at, in that first assignment, I, I learned that engineers in the Air Force typically don't do engineering, but we manage the engineers that the contractor companies have. Um, there are some jobs where we're getting nitty gritty, filling out equations, being county type stuff. But for the most part, engineers in the Air Force are um, there to make sure that the programmatics of engineering work as well. So I did a satellite job, worked on another three years on the Joint Strike Fighter. Uh, so around 2006 is when I took an assignment over at our officer training school in Alabama. And it was then when I started seeing the impact of what I learned and how I was teaching the new officers that were coming through, or just soon to be officers. Seeing the impact and working with such a fantastic crew to teach those students, uh, that's what really hit me. Uh, that's when it really hit me to um, not just enjoy the job, but see it as a career. And that was around 2006, about 16 years ago. So since then, I've enjoyed um, any chance I have to teach, which is part of the reason why I wanted to come here, is to teach future officers. Um, I feel like I had a lot to offer in that respect. Um, plus, I wanted to come to a school that's known for its engineering. That's my background. And I felt that if I can take on the job here, I can be the go-between the engineering students and the military aspect and be able to translate both, both languages so that everyone knows what to expect when they leave here. Right. And would you say that you found more value teaching cadets than you ever would in an industrial or commercial setting? Or have you ever thought about it? Sure. Yes. Uh, each job, I uh, try to make sure that I am valued and that I see value in what I do. Uh, that came easier teaching because the uh, impact is uh, so much sooner when I teach a lesson and then I test them on it or I put them in a situation where they need to uh, use the, the, the lessons that I just taught one or two days before, it has pretty immediate impact. Um, whereas in engineering and my other jobs, the impact is much more longer. It's a long game. So you're working uh, months, sometimes years for a program to get it off the ground or to, to first bend metal if you're doing something kind of manufacturing. Uh, because the requirements process has been uh, been long. Air Force and Space Force understand that the process is long and they're doing, um, they're inno innovating new ways to shorten that process uh, so that they can develop uh, new technology or new products faster because the world is, the threats around the world are just as rapid, just as, just as dynamic. So we need to make sure we can adjust to that. Um, but all that aside, uh, the value that I see in teaching and being able to impact human beings versus impacting a program uh, is, I do find both valuable. I just find the value sooner. I see it sooner uh, when I'm teaching students. Sure. If there are any principles that you found in the military teaching that you felt could be also be useful in an academia, academia or 
something that it's not usually practiced in academia, but you you found because you were coming from a military background ah. and you thought, okay, this could be if this was applied in an educational setting or an academia, um, it would it would help many students too. Ah, okay. There are some benefits in teaching on the military side versus academia. Uh, it's I don't think it's feasible, but it would be easier to teach if a student um, was asked to leave the school if they failed the class. If there was that much pressure, uh, it might be easier to teach. Now, there's the mental side of that much pressure on the students. So it, it isn't best all around. But when you have an active audience that knows that if they fail the course, that they can't, they've pretty much lost their officer job, there's, um, it's a bit easier to connect with them because they, they, it's more, it's more onus on them to be there. Um, so it, it, I'm sure students in college, uh, there are many that uh, see it as their, uh, the, the next step in their professional evolution, and they're going to put all that they can into it. But I also know that not all of them are. So um, if that might be some way. What I'm hearing is that maybe high stakes is making the students perform better. Yes, I, I think so. I think there's higher stakes at, at hand. Um, the, for students, it's it's not a, um, a you're not about to take on a job unless you're about to graduate, possibly. So as you go as you progress through college, um, there's time to adjust, either a different major or you adjust your study habits to do better. Um, but if you take that last semester, uh, for example, and how you do in that last semester will reflect uh, exactly whether you get that next job right after you graduate. If that kind of pressure is used every single semester, then it would, I think there would be a statistically greater success rate if there's that much more pressure. Right, and I think I think that's an interesting point about the the military because it teaches you to be strong in a way that that you have to adapt no matter the situation. And I think you know the pressure in school and everything it's not really a a real pressure because if you think about it from a greater scheme, you know, being stressed in school is that a real pressure? Maybe, right? Who knows? But especially in, in this aspect, in this context, you have way greater pressures mm. and way greater things that you have to deal with and you need to adapt. Sure. And I think, and, you know, I think that's something that is always very interesting that there's something about the, uh, the military that, that transforms people in, in, in sometimes in a very good way. Uh, I remember, I don't know much about it, but I do I know, remember this guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, David Goggins. Hmm. Uh, it's just this guy who I think he used to be I don't remember in what branch exactly but he, he he tells a story of how he used to be over overweight he was in he had a bunch of addictions and he really he was just had a really terrible life so he decided to enroll and you know in the military and he said that was like the best thing because of so much discipline so much that he you remember he was doing some sort of like like running training type of thing and because he was so fat, uh, not so fat, but uh, overweight, he I think his ligaments broke or something. Wow. And But he kept going. 
he kept going, he finished, and everyone was clapping him and everything. But that shows that there's something that we don't see in today's society, that discipline, that much skin in the game to, to perform, to succeed. And I think that's something that is, is very unique. And I think, I think um, we should have more of. Something I also think about is that um, in some countries we have, in some countries in the world, there's a one-year like military like requirement mm -hmm. after high school. And you know, regardless of what you think of it, I think that it's also very interesting because it shows people like how to like work together in, in a greater in a greater like scheme of things. And there's this person who wrote this like essay and he was basically outlining how it could be done and why some of the benefits. And I remember one of the benefits would be that you like people would learn how to struggle in a way. Okay. And I think that's something that uh, we haven't thought a lot about, especially in today's society. But you know, studying aerospace, uh, aerospace engineering in the 90s, 2000s was not really a, a very interesting, you know, you could say it was not a good choice, especially because, you know, NASA was basically pretty much, you know, stagnant. They haven't, you know, up until, you know, after like 1980s, NASA wasn't really doing much, like in the, the funding was cut. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like aerospace in general was kind of like dying. And it was only up, up to, you know, recent times where, you know, there's private companies that kind of space started to, Bloom, mm -hmm. but you still decided to study aerospace engineering, and I'm assuming you did it because you you want it, and in and because you you were inspired to do that. So I'm curious, what inspired you exactly? Like, was there anything that inspired you to go into aerospace? Was there airplanes? Was there space? Sure. What was it exactly? As a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what started it. Um, and I remember growing up. With all my transformers, I take them apart, put them back together. So I wanted to manipulate things. I, I wanted to see how things were built. Um, so with the right uh, parents and mentors, it led me down the engineering path. Um, and so when I went to college, uh, that's what I studied. Um, I was pretty good at it. Uh, I wouldn't say I aced every test, but I was good enough to graduate at least. Uh, but then after that, uh, I definitely wanted to continue my, um, sorry, use my education in, in industry. So, uh, um, uh, along the same, at the same time, trying to apply to NASA to see how viable being an astronaut really was. And I learned along the way that it's 0.02% people that apply actually make it. So I had to make sure I had a plan B because, <laughs> um, I can't just rely on always applying and, um, not having a, a backup plan. So my plan B was to work in the industry at uh, what we call the DOD contracting companies like Boeing or Lockheed, Northrop Grumman type places. And uh, being able to use my engineering training that I got in classes and use them in, in industry. Uh, well, when that job search didn't go as well as planned, I wanted to still use it, but now I started looking at the military. My father was in the army during the Vietnam War, and my grandfather was in the Navy during the World War II. They had both gotten out before the next one was born, uh, before the son was born. So my dad nor I grew up around military, so we chose that path uh, in our adult life. And for me, it's been great. Uh, my time in Alabama, I met my wife, my future wife, so we got married along the way. So that's been a great add to my life story. 
but going back to aerospace engineering, yes, in the, in the 90s, it was um, kind of stagnant because we only had one launch, human launch platform, and that was NASA, going up with the shuttle and the orbiters. Um, and it wasn't until much in the 2010s when uh, private companies were trying to, and successful at bringing down the cost of launches. So then other companies could then explore not just launching, but satellites, putting up microsat, uh, macro, sorry, microsats up in space that have one small um, mission, but that's all that's really needed for the research that they're doing. So uh, I, I really see space um, figuratively taking off and um, building more and more human um, platforms to not just explore space, but outer space. Um, I'm glad to be part of the Space Force. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to be in space, but I'll be um, very valued and I would see value in helping others reach that point. Could you still become an astronaut or? Because I know there, there's an application. There is an application. And I think you would fit the requirements. <laughs> um, I had to look at my age. I'm 45, so I don't know what age. Uh, I know um, former Senator John Glenn went up as uh, a senior citizen aged member to do the research on how space affects senior citizens. I don't think that's a continuous research project that, the, that NASA chooses to do. So the age might be, as a starting off, uh, might be, I might be a little old. Now, uh, this school has put out two or three astronauts. Um, one is a current Space Force Colonel Hopkins, who just served on the ISS he returned in March from the ISS. So it's, I think, his third mission to space. He's about, I think, 10 years older than me. So, um, but he's been part of the program for a while. Right. I think entry age, I may have aged out. I'm not sure. I'll have to check in on that. But I think, the, the, I think in 2020, SpaceX do, took NASA astronauts mm -hmm. to space. Mm -hmm. I think they were over... 50, one of them at least. Yes, there, so, I mean, there, I guess like, well, I, I guess if you really wanted to, like what would you do? Or like what would be the steps to, to make that happen? Like would you go on the NASA application? I remember I, I met Don uh, Petit, I think. He, he was an astronaut and, and I met him. Ah. And um, we, we, we gave, um, he gave his talk and whatever and we, I met him and he, he was telling me, you know, apply to be an astronaut, apply to be an astronaut. And I'm like, Maybe, I don't know, I've never thought about it. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, what would you do, as, as in, in your place? Would you go to the website and apply, or? Uh, definitely check out the website first to see what, what's required. But um, back when I was younger, the requirement was, um, if you only had a bachelor's, you, had, you needed to spend, uh, I think, six plus years in industry. If you had a master's, you needed to spend three years in industry. If you had a doctorate, you could apply right away. Now, those are the base minimums at the time. People were in industry much longer than six years with the bachelors, um, if that's all they had. Uh, I'm sure the applicants that NASA received were probably half doctorate along the way. That's just my, uh, my guess. So making just the minimums isn't going to get you far. When I had talked to others who did apply and made it past the first cut, sometimes the second cut, um, when it gets down to the smaller numbers under 100, it was more on personality 
not just the person, but how well they act, interacted with others in the team. How much of a team player are you versus uh, I'm, I need to take care of my mission. I'll help others along the way if need be, but I got to take care of my mission. It was uh, more of how can this team solve this problem or how can this team work better to get the mission done faster? So it was a balance between team um, ability and what your background was and what the future missions might entail, which you don't have any control over. Um, for example, if NASA had missions that were all um, mostly biology-based, they might, at, when, in the next hiring of astronauts, hire more biologists or microbiologists along the way just to complete those, have the knowledge to complete those backgrounds. That's not something you really have uh, any control over. It's based on what you chose to study in school. And your, what you choose to study should be based on what your interests are. If NASA doesn't happen to need those in the next 10, 20 years, there's a big world out there. It's not just NASA, but you can maybe help NASA along the way. Uh, so it's, there's definitely more than one avenue to, you, to use your skills to help people get into space. We, we talked about goals, right? And the dreams, but what is one ambition or like one goal you have for yourself that you see, you want to see yourself achieve in the near future? <sighs> like my bucket list type goal? Sure, I mean, it's something that you're really ambitious about, something that you genuinely want to achieve in life. Oh. Like if someone gave you one wish today, like could grant you one wish, mm -hmm. what, what would it be that you would wish for? Time to spend with my family. Um, I have two girls, uh, six and one's about, about to turn nine. And uh, them and my wife, I love them to death. I, I always wish I could spend more time with them. Um, life gets in the way with time commitments uh, here, this and that. But if I could wish for something, it would just be more time with them. Um, I know I'm, I've been in the Air Force and Space Force long enough to retire. So having that word retirement in the back of my mind mm. is getting bigger. I'm not, I'm not ready yet professionally. Uh, to retire from one job uh, and then look for another one. Uh, I think there's still more I can do in this job, but the longer I stay in, the more time I need to invest in the job. That does mean less time with family. Mm. And it's a balance that um, everyone works through uh, between family and your professional life. So if there was something I could wish for, it'd just be um, the freedom to choose how much time I have right. and not let other things be impacted by me spending less time on them. Right. Is there is there something in particular you want to do before you retire? Gosh. Um, something that I'd like to do maybe in the Space Force, Air yeah. Force? Yeah. Oh, okay. <sighs> I would like to see a launch. Okay. That'd be pretty cool. Um and in my with you in it or <laughs> um that would be fantastic uh, but it, anything but me being in the in the capsule on the launch pad 
would be just being part of the, the unit in the squadron that helps launch the rocket and being there, feeling the pressure of the rockets, uh, the rocket taking off, um, and knowing that whoever's in there, no matter what, is about to do great things. Uh, being in space by itself is a great endeavor. It's a great thing. It's, we're not meant to be there. Uh, there's so many things that are dangerous for us to be there, yet we do it anyway. And to get someone up there is an achievement in itself, let alone what they're about to do with experiments and mm -hmm. building stuff up there. So if I can be part of that, that would be pretty wild. Yeah. Is there, is there something um, that the military has changed you for the better or for the worse? Oh. What would it be? Okay. Military has um, uh, appreciated about the military. It's just seeing the world mm -hmm. as, as a world and not just my community, not just my state, or not just the country. One thing I've tried to um, incorporate into the lessons that I teach my seniors is uh, when they, when, when I have a lesson to teach them um, that involves um, different cultures, I try to get them to see how another culture might be, might react to what you're choosing to do. For example, if the U.S. chooses to do this, whether it be dip, uh, something diplomatic or economic or military-wise, what would another country do to react? It doesn't have to be an adversary, it could be an ally, but what affects them, what impacts their decision to choose to, to do that? Or if a country um, starts to do something that was unexpected, What's the motive behind that point? What's the why? If you understand the why and the motive, you're theoretically should be better at understanding why they're doing it. And if it's something that the U.S. wants to uh, encourage, then we understand the why. If it's something that we want to discourage, we also understand the why and ways that we can try and discourage further action from that point. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where the... We wouldn't need an army, or like any country would would not need an army. They would become obsolete. I would like there to be world peace. Hmm. Um, I I don't know if the world is culturally homogenous enough to put aside differences hmm. um, that would eliminate war, at least not yet. I think there's, um, having self-identity is good, but when it inhibits you from understanding other cultures and accepting them, that makes things harder. So you would, you would think that conflict has to do with a lack of homogeneous? Uh, uh, like, not just that. But like a big, that's interesting, actually, because I would I would say the world has become more homogenous in, in a way. With like, like globalization has become, everyone's kind of sort of like thinking the same, watching the same things. So it becomes a very globalized. It's becoming a very globalized, homogenous like world, and it seems to me. Yeah, so I think that that's a huge part of it, and I think that could, that could actually explain. That could be a factor that explains why we haven't had a a war and a big war since what is it 40 or something uh so that's interesting yeah 
Um, I agree with you. I think the world is, is better at accepting and integrating being more homogenous than than not. And since World War II ended in, in the 40s, we haven't had another world war. Um, part of that is also because of how interconnected the commerce is around the globe. And you, a country is less likely to attack another one if their economies are uh, intertwined mm. because you're shooting yourself in the foot, so to speak. And after, before World War II, uh, before the U.S. joined in World War II, we were much more of an isolationist country. Um, we, we were coming back from the Great Depression from the late 20s, trying to rebuild our own country. Uh, and the, the sight to, the, the foresight to look at other countries and how we could interchange with them, interact with them. Uh, there just wasn't, it wasn't there. Uh, but after World War II, we saw how much we were needed. We saw how much we needed other countries to help us prosper and them prosper and also uh, for them to prosper. Um, so even with countries that are um, not allies right now, it wasn't always the case. Uh, there were times where we were friendly towards countries um, that we aren't now or don't have a rapport with right now. So things change. Um, things can also get better, hmm. which I'm always hopeful for. Yeah, I, th I think something you mentioned about the uh, this interconnectedness that we have, and you know, I think I think it happened with like Bretton Woods conference, and you know, like th that sort of came out with the United Nations and everything else. Mm. That was quite quite the interesting innovation because it creates the mutually assured destruction. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I yeah, have not thought about it that way too. You know, I was thinking something recently with some of the world conflicts we're, we're having. Is that, is that it seems to me that I would not think that we would have so much, like we would need humans to be like, let's say fighting. Because uh, I, I don't know, I was thinking for some reason that we had enough technology that we, it would just be like, I don't know, robots against robots type of thing, or like drones against drones. And it just seems to me like we're not there yet. Like, do you think we'll ever reach a point where, you know, if there's conflict, which hopefully we don't have any conflict or anything like that, but if there's conflict, it would just be just AIs or, or machines or robots against robots instead of mm -hmm. like actually using, you know, humans. Do you think we'll ever reach such a point? It would have to be a big shift in uh, morals and ethics. Because right now, the Air Force uses a lot of remote pilot aircraft. And they are not considered drones because they're not set off and left to do with what they want or what they're programmed to do. There's always a human in the loop. And if that mission involves um, some type of destruction, U.S. wants to have a human in the loop to make that final decision. So uh, I, I think that will prevail, that kind of mentality will prevail unless there's a dramatic shift in what people accept as, well, this can, this can destroy that when they're both things. Uh, a robot, like what you say, can destroy a building. It, how much... 
you can't say how much humanity is in that robot or the AI, but how much trust did you put into that thing that it will choose a, make a human decision when it needs to, if there isn't a human in the loop. So it'll be it'll need a change, a shift like that. Well, yeah, it, it's a, it's a big topic because <laughs> yes, it is. You, you would normally think that there's so many things because I think we could get to the point where I think we're very close, or maybe there already, where AIs and these robots with AI could just make the decisions, right? And perhaps you could say better and worse than humans, but I think having another human seeing and, and thinking and, and being affected definitely changes how, how things are played. And if you get to a point where, you know, it's kind of fought with robots, I just don't know how that, how, because that could be a huge shift, like you said, on how things play out because maybe less mercy or maybe who, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that, that's an interesting point. And perhaps that requires a lot more thoughts. Um, I still don't think that humans would benefit from it because like, even though you're not fighting the war, you would still be facing the consequences, right? Mm -hmm. like, if another country's drones or something um, come to our city and like hail destruction, it's still you that's suffering, right? Yes. Well, the people in the city. So I don't know, it, it might be for the worse. Um, depends on how you're programming it or how it's used, but. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do wanna ask you something. How, how, how are you guys thinking of the other, you know, the last few decades? Probably the, the notion of the military, it's increasingly more negative. How are you guys thinking of, of changing that, that narrative how are you guys thinking of inspiring more, more people to to join, and and how are you guys thinking of, of that question? Because it's a, it's a really important question, right? Yes. That sometimes it's not based on facts or what the truth is. It just this narrative, and this is what people think, and this is what people believe, mm -hmm. which not always may be true. So how how are you guys thinking of changing that and, and creating a new narrative where people are excited about serving the the country and making uh, you know, being part of something so much greater and so much, uh, just being part of this group of people working and serving the country. Sure. Um, I think the military, all of the Department of Defense, and if you include the Coast Guard too, I think they are doing better at mm, publicizing the humanitarian missions that we have. When I was an instructor down in Alabama, um, 2000 six to eight time frame. I can't remember the exact year, but Haiti had a huge earthquake, completely destroyed the, the, the country and they, had, they really had no in, internal infrastructure to repair themselves. Um, a lot of our mission at that time was to go down to Haiti. I, I, I remember seeing pictures of um, enlisted that we have that would emulate a control tower they have two tables, two chairs. They're not in a tower. They're doing the best they can to look at aircraft that are coming in, that are coming in with supplies. So um, being able to understand how social media works better um, sent in the, I guess, the past 10 years or so, and being able to uh, publish 
more of the humanitarian stories. Um, a lot of the National Guard that each state has, they're not training for war. They're helping the, the state get back on its feet with whatever mission. One of the jobs I had was with Joint Task Force Civil Support out of Virginia. And in that job, I learned so much about what the National Guard offers in each of the states. Um, California has their earthquakes, has their fires. Um, Florida has hurricanes. All the, all the states, all the southern states have hurricanes. Uh, Midwest has tornadoes. When the governor feels like they need that help, they send in the National Guard to help the people there get back on their feet. And it's uh, more marketing that uh, to show that the military isn't just um, uh, a warmongering unit. It's there to help. And um, so I, I, I think that more of that is coming. Um, as far as what we do here at the school is I, um, I do let them know that they might have a job where they might need to make that decision whether someone lives or dies. But there's so much more to the military than just that one decision and that one job. Um, for example, we have a number of seniors that are going um, to Texas and uh, Japan that are, their job is all about taking care of the airmen and guardians that are on the base, giving them food, uh, make sure that they have lodging. Um, we call it the force support career field. That, that's not uh, the person at the tip of the spear that we say making the making that final decision for for um, for someone or or something but he's taking care of the people that uh, are there that are also there to help take care of people so it's not just about um, being on the tip of the spear <clears throat> and you're also interacting with other countries um, in my future jobs I foresee that I'll work with other countries space missions and the satellite communication um, every country needs it uh, and not every country has it for their own use or for to, to communicate with other countries or have global communication. So that isn't um, directly tied to boots on ground, uh, shooting bullets downrange type thing. It's helping the economies and countries around the world prosper. That's part of what we do. And I think that that's something that a lot of people need to know that it just, it's, not, it's not just, you know, black and white, you know, it's, it's a lot more, it's such a great, it's such a, it's a very big organization and they're doing so many things that people, sometimes people don't, don't get to hear. So you're moving, you're living Illinois, mm -hmm. you're living at the university and you're going to LA. I am. And from what you told me, I think you're going to a more, um, I mean, the, the Space Force has different um places in, in different so bases yeah bases. bases there you go yeah. so you have you have you guys have one in colorado and one in la um yeah a few a, a few uh at least three in colorado springs All right. uh, but colorado yes we have a number of them california we have a number of them florida as well so um not that many bases not as much as air force or army and navy we're a very small service about seven thousand officers so very small compared to the hundreds above 100,000 the Air Force has and the 200,000 the other services might have. Sorry, go ahead. Right, so you're going over there, but before you tell me what exactly you're going to be doing, 
why was this first Space Force created? What are its current uh, tax, uh, tasks and, and goals? Okay. As well as more of the long-term future goals that the, the, the Space Force has. Sure. Um, so, uh, big reason, I'm paraphrasing here, but the big reason why Space Force was created is because um, as the space, as Air Force Space Command, the, the space arm of the Air Force was, was getting bigger, um, there was thought among senior leaders that the uh, budget wasn't, uh, could, be, could, have, could have been allocated differently so that more money was going to space programs than aircraft programs. This is within the Department of Air Force. Um, so uh, as a way to get things, to get more budget into space programs, if we split them up, then at least they can manage their own. So that's one aspect. Um, another is the there are other countries around the world that are building up their space programs, their space military programs, not just space exploration like what NASA does, but there are other countries that build up their space military programs. U.S. has a history and wants to keep um, its. Um, It's lead in developing not just air, not just land-based conflict um, processes, but also space-based conflicts. And uh, in the early days of space, space, uh, space exploration or space assets in uh, satellites, they went up in space, they did their mission, and if they ran out of fuel, they would come back down or we'd shoot them out to um, called SuperSync, uh, just to get rid of it. Space isn't like that anymore. So uh, much how the world's navies were used to help protect lanes of commerce with navy uh, with, um, ships bringing supplies to a country, navies, navies were partly built to help protect those sea lanes of commerce. There are space lanes of commerce that need protection too. Um, much how you're going to uh, introduce this video to people on school and possibly around the world is using satellite communications. And uh, US has a lot of them. Sorry, the US as a nation has a lot of them. It's uh, companies, um, DirecTV or uh, what was called Hughes at the time, AT&T has their communication satellites, um, T-Mobile, all these different cell phone companies that don't just rely on cell phone towers, but their infrastructure is built upon satellites. Uh, the things that run our, our watches, our phones, it's all based on the clocks that are on our global positioning satellite, um, GPS satellites. Those need protection because if those are um, hindered in some way, then everything that relies on a clock is now um, in a, a, could be turned off. It could, it's now not working. So banks will shut down. Um, it's it's uh, a, a huge impact if they don't have those digital clocks that are coming, the signals coming from GPS. So all that to say is Space Force is used to help protect the commercial satellites that are up there, as well as the military satellites that are up there. And to make sure that they are, uh, if they are protected, then they also protect the way of life that we have not just in the States, but with our allies.
Yeah, and I, I think one of the, the biggest things right now is, is with the satellites. And, you know, we, we've seen some countries that they, they're developing a lot of technology to kind of like destroy satellites. And that's going to be a huge, huge, huge issue with trying to, you know, to have everything in, in peace and everything. And I mean, so this person from, I mean, from Russia was like threatening, you know, like throwing the, the ISS, like the ISSS, I mean, ISS. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, I mean, the, the space station. Yeah. Yeah. You start into like, I don't know, like on the earth or something, something like that, because like he, he didn't want to maintain it or something uh, because of the conflict with Ukraine and everything else. So it's a, it's a very tricky situation there. It's very critical. Because like you said, a lot of the things we depend on are all satellites. So that's something that we, it's really important. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the space force evolves to, you know, who knows, maybe we'll have some, it will be some sort of, you, you could, you know, it could be used as a way to, you know, build infrastructure in space and maybe some moon base and it will be exciting times as we move forward and hopefully you'll be part of that of that, of that mission and like you said building and making part of launching many rockets and many infrastructure and you never know hopefully you'll be in the capsule at some point <laughs> uh, you know you said you've worked with many young people you have two children mm -hmm. what advice do you have for someone who's just starting out graduating from college, graduating from high school, about to enter high school. Yes. You know, you've been in so many places. You've been, you've learned so much. What advice do you have for them as they go about and enter the world? Or what advice should they ignore? Wow. Um, I like both questions. I haven't heard the second one before, so uh, I'd like to explore that one. Some advice that I would give to a high school senior or someone that's about to graduate college. Uh, something I just told my cadets the other day is once you find out what is um, we call it our left and rights, our boundaries of what we do, it could be your job, it could be an assignment that you have for a class, it could be anything. There's always going to be boundaries that you are told to stay in. Once you find that out, if you need to operate within those boundaries, then stop asking permission. You've already been told you know what the left and rights are. Do what you need to to get it done. So I've told my cadets, if you're in that boundary, stop asking permission. Let your bosses know I'm going to do this in this way, using these resources, unless you tell me no. So that they're taking, they, they own the risk. They've analyzed it enough. They should have the trust from their supervisors to do what's right, what needs to be done within those boundaries. Do that for a little bit. As you start to understand the boundaries and you can analyze how other things can affect those boundaries, positive and negative, now you get into what's called thinking outside the box. That's where you want to get to because that's how you're going to influence not just your box, but other boxes too. And um, so kind of understand the boundaries, stop asking for permission, and then start thinking about the box or thinking outside the box. Um, so that's more of a professional type advice. Um, when it comes to, you mentioned my kids and my family. When someone decides that they're at that point where they want to start the family, um, really consider 
how much time you can balance with that because it is, it's not easy. It is not easy to have a family and it's not to be taken lightly. Um, here I'm kind of in charge of people's careers, but with family you're now in charge of people's lives. And that's a dramatic change uh, and a shift in how you think about things. Um, when I was going through college, um, I always knew I wanted a family, but I wanted to make sure that I was grown, grown up enough to appreciate a family and that I knew how to manage my own time to have a family. I'm still trying to learn how to balance because things change. Uh, Are you growing up uh, enough? Or? <laughs> I'd like to think so. Okay. Um, after uh, being married since 2011, um, I thought I was grown up, grown up enough then. I felt I was, but that my, my growth didn't stop there. I definitely have grown uh, more mature since then. Um, and which every, with every accomplishment and every mistake that I made, I, I get smarter along the way. Um, but then you also asked, what advice should they avoid or ignore? I had not heard that question before. So I'm interest, interested to how you guys will answer that. Um, When narrative is created, uh, it, may, it may not be answering your question about ignoring certain advice, but things to be consider, considered when you're hearing information. When you hear narrative, there's always motive behind it. And whether it's coming from social media, um, uh, a news outlet, it could be any news outlet, it could be your newspaper, um, or uh, the ones on TV. But every piece of information you get, there's some type of motive behind it. Um, most pure would be for informational purposes. I'm giving you this data, you can analyze it and do with it how you will. Um, the motive behind there is to keep, to get someone informed so that they can make maybe better decisions down the line. Um, what has definitely Expand, ex, uh, expanded in the 2000s is that information is being conveyed with ulterior motives. And it's to lead someone down to decision rather than giving them information so that they can make that decision. And filtering out pieces of data to influence someone's decision or how they think down the line. So um, don't ignore all information but take everything you hear with a grain of salt so that you can make up your own mind later on. Um, and if you can understand the why behind the motive, why is this person telling you only this piece of information and not everything else, then you can understand them better and whether they can be a resource, an asset, or a deficit to your growth. How's that? Awesome. <laughs> So I'm interested in what advice you think is not worth a grain of salt. You go first. No, you go ahead. <laughs> so, I mean, I, something I think a lot about is that, like, you know, what advice should, should you ignore, right? And I think the biggest thing 
just starting. Everything should be ignored. All advice should be ignored. A hundred percent. And here's why. Not because you're arrogant or anything like that. It's because when people are telling you advice, they're, they're giving you kind of their, their lottery ticket. And they got their lottery ticket and that's for them. And if you if you get if you get their lottery ticket and you go to the store, the the, the lottery is already been reclaimed. Okay. Not only that, when people when I ask for advice for people when I when I'm kind of like asking, okay, I'm I'm not, I'm not going, hey, should I do that or what do you think of it? I, I usually think I usually ask, how should I think about this? How can I think about this question? Okay. Because I'm way more interesting about how they reach the conclusion, okay. how they're thinking about what they're thinking, instead mm -hmm. of like, hey, should I do this project? Yes or no? Okay, I don't care what, what you say. I want to know exactly what led you to say that decision. So I think that's the biggest thing um, on how to take advice. Because all advice should be ignored. It's just more about how do you get to the decision. Okay. Um, the other thing is that... Uh, I think that there's, there's this huge thing of, you know, focus in your career and, and focus on, you know, doing things that will help you in your career. And I think that's something that should be ignored. I think, you, you, I think most people, more people should do more of what they wish, more of what they're curious about and know so much about, you know, what it's hot or, or what's, it's going to help in my resume. I think it's hard because, you know, like I said, we live in a globalized imaginist world. And it's kind of really, really hard to find your obsessions and know what you're really curious about. But it's really hard these days. And I think it's something that, you know, kind of closing off those things. And what actually makes me curious? What do I actually want to do? Not what I see people are doing on social media, what people are kind of thinking about. Like, what am I thinking about? What do I want to follow and, and pursue. I think those, those are things to think about. What do you think? Um, I would say you should take all advice, but you don't have to listen to every single one of them. Okay. Um, like you said, getting advice, when you, when you get an advice, think about why that person is saying what, what he or she is, because that can help you make that decision better right because they might have thought it thought of it in a way that you might not have mm -hmm. and that could be a factor that you could consider in your decision so i feel like every input could be useful um like we we cannot just like trust on your like your own self for, for every decision okay that i know what to do best for every situation i think having some input is always good regardless of whether you take that advice or not, you you think that okay, what I felt at the beginning was right. I want to go with that. Um, I don't think I, any of the advice has helped. That that's fine, but I don't think you should shut yourself off from taking any advices because you are depriving yourself of the of the opportunity to learn something or think about something from a, from a different perspective or a different different aspect, right? Or for any of the decision that you might be talking about. So. How about space mining? Space mining. A um, couple of different ways I, I, I would look at that. Right now, I think the topic and discussion of it is a bit overrated. But centuries down the line, I think it will be uh, underrated for what might be needed um, for us to continue exploring space. 
um, whether it's going to be what Star Trek or Star Wars have uh, pictured our futures might be, we're going to need more material. And with the material on, on Earth being finite, um, and also Earth may be further away than the closest asteroid that has minerals that you need. So I think in the distant future, the need to, for space mining will be uh, a necessity. I mean, sure, sure, it's an, like it's futuristic, and maybe down the line we'll we'll do that as a species. But I feel like we do have finite. I mean, even though we have finite resources on Earth, I think we still have enough if we use it judiciously. Sure, I agree. Okay. So, would you just say that space mining would be a consequence of rampant or um, just consumerist usage of resources? Um, it it kind of depends on what you're mining for. If it's for uh, metals and minerals, um, anywhere but the moon is cost prohibitive. You can't get there cheap enough to get the materials yeah. you need. Um, but if we're talking about space mining on the moon, um, you'd want to if if there's enough H two uh, water up there, um, you. I think we need to get that in order to explore the moon. But if other minerals have to be dug up along the way, um, at this time, I don't think it's needed. Um, but at some point in the future, I think it will be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think you can always use things better in, uh, than at where you are than to try and find it other places. Um, and I agree that I think as humans, there's more efficient ways that we can use our resources here on, on Earth. Yeah, I agree. Have you seen the movie uh, Look Up? Don't Look Up. Don't, <laughs> yes, I have. I've so seen it. You might be in a position where <laughs> you may have to convince people. You know, or you are in, in ways trying to convince people. I mean, every, everyone in a way is trying to impose their will, convincing others. but you specifically, you might be in a position at some point in the future of trying to convince government officials or people who have and make decisions about what to do or not to do. That position, that role, underrated or overrated? Um, it, I. I believe it's underrated, whether it's trying to convince people that they have an impending doom that they are just ignoring, or whether you need to convince someone that what you have is the next best thing that can solve world's problems. You need to convince somebody of it. So it's not just um, the, the roles that the, the actors played in the movie. Uh, about convincing leaders to open their eyes and see things from a different perspective. It's more about um, conveying, conveying that your idea is will benefit not just you, but other people, and that they, uh, they would be at a loss if they didn't invest in your idea. So that ability, I think it will always be needed.
and important because you never know how your actions, your decisions, how, what you say and how you say it might affect future outcomes. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us and sharing your experience and what you hope to do in, in the future. And I really hope you get to be at least see the uh, launch, which I'm sure you will, but <laughs> if you. not in, in the capsule at some point. Oh. And, and hopefully, you know, in the moon and, and, and beyond and Maybe. being in the space. I do think, I do, I do hope, or I do think, I do want to go to space at some point. And I think that's about 200K to go or something like that. Uh, but I think it will get cheaper and hopefully in my lifetime I'll be up there and hopefully yours too. Oh, so thank you. Once again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Uh, my first official interview, which uh, I I greatly um, honored to be your guest today. Um, and as far as uh, all of our future in space, I mean, we have our first non-astronaut people up in space now. So that is just the first step in uh, on another long journey to get more uh, citizens and civilians up into space that aren't military or um, NASA type astronauts up there. So there's a little bit more hope for us yet to get up into space and explore uh, weightlessness, as it were, um, and explore something. And just to see Earth for, for what it is, um, it's a blue pearl and that we got to take care of it. So thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you. Um, thank you for everyone who's watching. Um, I hope you gained a lot out of this conversation. We talked about spending more time with your family. Um, following your ambitions, being more disciplined. And um, these are all important traits that we, at least personally, we hope we should at least instill in ourselves. Um, enjoy the finer things in life and never, never stop being curious. Um, there's always more to learn. Um, just, we talked about space and there's just so much we don't know about and there's just so much to explore and it's, it's endless. The opportunities are endless and they're just waiting for us to do something about it. So thank you once again for watching. If you have any questions for Professor Timberlake, please post them in the comments and we'll try to get them answered for you. And stay curious and we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.